Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the sermon. It's good to see you guys. Let me say welcome to all you guys joining us online. We're excited to have you with us for week two of our series, The Kingdom is Near, where we are working through the book of Nehemiah. So if you have a Bible, <clears throat> excuse me, if you have a Bible uh, and you want to open to uh, Nehemiah chapter one or you have it on an electronic device, go ahead and join me there. Uh, Nehemiah chapter one. We're going to look at the first four verses this morning. If you have, uh, if you're trying to find it in the Old Testament, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, or if you find the Big Book of Job and you work backwards, Esther, and then Nehemiah. Or if you want to look in the table of contents, no, no judgment there. Go right ahead. Sometimes these books are hard to find. So the book of Nehemiah, as you're turning there, the book of Nehemiah is split into really two neatly divided parts. Chapters 1 through 7 will record for us how Nehemiah is used by God to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And then chapters 8 through 13 is going to record the revival that takes place once those walls are rebuilt. The revival of the people um, as they celebrate God's power, his faithfulness, his grace, and how he allowed them to be a part of that rebuilding. And so you could say the entire book of Nehemiah kind of hinges on the story of the walls of Jerusalem. All right? However, the opening chapters of this book do not focus on the walls. And you're going to see that as we look into our text today. It actually doesn't tell us who broke down the walls. It doesn't tell us when it happened. It doesn't tell us uh, even why it matters that they were broken down. Now, we can know that. It is in the Bible. You can study and know um, as you look at the historical record of the, the nation of Jerusalem, you can see what happened in Jerusalem and when the walls and all this took place. But as we look at this first couple of verses and into this chapter, it's really focused on a man after whom the book is named. He stands kind of front and center as we get into this. And that's significant. And here's why that's significant that the book begins like that. Because it wants to start immediately in teaching us a lesson. And this is the lesson. When God wants to do something great in the world, he always begins by calling and preparing a person or a people he will use to bring that work to pass. So when God wants to do something great in the world, he always begins by calling and preparing a person or a people he will use to bring that work to pass. And we're starting to see that immediately in the book of Nehemiah, all right? And so the book of Nehemiah kind of focuses on the story again about the walls of Jerusalem. But when we get into the book, we'll find that the story of Nehemiah teaches us the kind of person God uses to do great things. And I'm personally encouraged by the fact that God chose Nehemiah to do great things. And he chose Nehemiah to teach us that lesson. Uh, in the book of Nehemiah, there are no overt miracles associated with Nehemiah's story. Unlike other places within the Old Testament, even in the New Testament. Rather, you could say it's this, it's this look or this tell of someone who is going to work hard. Someone who is focused on prayer and the providence of God at work behind the scenes. Nehemiah was just a regular guy. Just a regular guy who caught a glimpse, a divine glimpse, if you will, what could and should be. 
And then he went after it with all his heart, as we will see. And we can look at Nehemiah's life and truly say, if God used him, he can use anybody, which is encouraging. It's inspiring. So we think about what God's calling us to as a church, our For the Kingdom campaign that we're going to share. And we have a luncheon today after our second service out in the Student Center that you're invited to, a vision lunch to share a little more about the vision and kind of the recap of what we shared over the last several weeks. But, but as we think about this, for us today to catch that glimpse, as Nehemiah caught catch that glimpse to minister to all people in all areas of their life throughout their life, which is what God, we believe God's given to us as a vision for the, for the campus that he's shared with us, that we would steward it well. And we are to start that great adventure together. So there's some, some collaboration, there's some correlation, there's some connection here, right? Between what, what's happening in Nehemiah's life as we're going to see as we get into this and what God has placed on us and as he's leading us to see our campus expand and be used for his glory, for his kingdom, to the ministry of people. Because that's what matters. So let's get into our text. Nehemiah 1, verses 1 through 4. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem, verse 3. And they said to me, the remnant there... In the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. Verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So right off the start, in verse 1, the first verse of the book Nehemiah, of Nehemiah introduces the opening scene of the book for us. It's kind of how you, everybody who starts into a new book, you kind of want this first part here. Like you want some questions answered. And that's what happens. It begins by telling us that the story is primarily a narrative, right, taken from Nehemiah's maybe official journal, right, maybe his personal notes of the events that took place. It tells of his father's name, Hakaliah, in order to distinguish this Nehemiah from other Nehemiahs. Uh, in the book prior to this, Ezra chapter 2, there's a Nehemiah mentioned. This is not the same Nehemiah that's here. So, so these, these, this information that's given to us is important for us to actually understand it in its historical context. Then, in order to put this story in the dating of the history, in the context of history, it dates the opening scene in the month of the Hebrew word Chislev, which for us is mid-November to mid-December of a year in our calendar. And it's during the 20th year of the reign of the king of Persia, Artaxerxes. And then the verse closes by pinpointing the geographical location of the opening scene. I was in Susa, the citadel, which I mentioned last week is the, the winter retreat for the Persian king. So, so verse 1 really kind of sets like this is where it all starts, okay? And in many ways, Nehemiah had it made, which you will see next week as... As we look through the rest of the chapter, and I mentioned this last week, Nehemiah is a cupbearer. You could say he kind of already had it made. He was in a position of uh, affluence. He was in a position of influence and afforded him a home in the palace as cupbearer. He had a closeness with the king. He lived a life relative, a relative luxury compared to most of his Jewish counterparts. But when we read the opening verses of Nehemiah, it makes it clear that these comforts were really not enough to overrule his concern for the things of God and God's people. 
Nehemiah was a man who was going to become consumed, overwhelmed with a burden. So in his example, we're reminded that when God uses a person or a people to accomplish his work, it begins with a burden. True for us. Our burden to see, to see people around us, all around us, and the new people that are joining us in our area as more and more people are moving here, our burden is to see them know Jesus, to see them meet Jesus, see them come in contact with Jesus face to face because we know when you see Jesus face to face, your life will be changed forever. That's our burden. So here's a burden here for Nehemiah. And what we're learn, learning and what we see is that when God uses a person and a people to accomplish his work, it begins with a burden. And God always uses people who are faithful and committed and trustworthy to carry that burden and to see it through. There's a quote by Alan Redpath, who was a British pastor and author on, on Nehemiah. And he says this, he says, you never lighten the load unless, you first, unless first you have felt the pressure in your own soul. You are never used of God to bring blessing until God has opened your eyes and made you see things as they are. Nehemiah was called to build, was called to build the wall, but first he had to weep over the ruins. And we usually talk about burdens, and, and normally we only talk about burdens as something you lay down or that you get rid of. Yet God uses burdens of certain kinds to motivate us and to motivate his people into action. Take, for example, missionaries. Have you ever sat and wondered what it was in a missionary's life when they decided that they're going to leave, say, their hometown, their, their comfortable surroundings, and go to a foreign place that they don't know a whole lot about and become you know, a, a vessel of God in that place? When you think about it, think about it. It's not for fame or fortune that they go. And it's not because of greed or glory that compels them to leave, to go to a foreign place, right? What is it? It's a burden. It's a burden that they're carrying. What is the burden? For others to know Jesus. That's our burden. That was Nehemiah's burden, for God to get the glory, for God to be glorified in the lives of his people. So there's a burden here. Verse 2, notice Nehemiah's question to his brother and the others. Notice his concern for those people. He asked, he said, I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. His burden was causing a concern. Now, it's at least likely that Nehemiah had never even been to the city of Jerusalem. Think about that. The exile was 70 years long. Nehemiah was living a number of years after the first remnant had returned to the city, marking the end of the exile. So all Nehemiah knew about Jerusalem had been related to him through relatives and friends. He had never even been there. So in spite of this apparent disconnect from Jerusalem, the city, and of you know, the people that were there, his fathers, you could say, those who came before him, we find that Nehemiah had a concern. He said, I asked them concerning these people in the city. Now, we could probably say, if we're being honest, that we sometimes or most times live in an age of apathy, right? We can find ourselves apathetic about the things that matter. And if we're really honest, that we could, honest, we could say that we're more times concerned about the things of ourself, not other people. Nehemiah is going to show us, though, his heart is for others. 
And it's not plainly stated here in the opening verses. The book reveals what's going on in the heart of Nehemiah. And what was going on was a call of God upon him. In fact, you'll see that in chapter 2, verse 12. He says, what my God had put in my heart to do. He's going to describe that mission like that. So it wasn't just emotion is what I'm getting at. It wasn't just patriotism to his people, right? It wasn't religious zeal that stirred the heart of Nehemiah. He was being called by God. And there was a burden that God had placed on him in that call. So the opening chapter records no audible call, but as one preacher mentioned to us and says to us, put it clearly, said it was clearly louder than an audible call. He said he could hardly have sustained his work had he not been sustained himself by a strong sense that God had sent him to fulfill it and was standing by him as he discharged it, J.I. Packer. Then we get into verses 3 and 4. So in verse 2, Nehemiah asks how things are. And in verse 3, we get the report of how things are. And in verse 4, we get Nehemiah's response, right? So verse 3, they use two words to describe the condition of the remnant of the people of Jerusalem. One word described the internal condition, as commentators point out, which was trouble or distress. The other word described their external condition, which was shame, reproach. And they empathized these two terms with the word great. The people were suffering anguish of heart. They were suffering the ridicule of neighbor, trouble and shame. And then the last sentence of verse 3 tells us why they were experiencing that. It's because the, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, now us today have a hard time contextualizing, understand why is that making them you know, distressed? Why is that making them feel shame? There is a seriousness here about walls and gates that may sound strange to us. However, history tells us in, in the violent, aggressive culture of the ancient Near East, it was essential that cities be surrounded by high walls and secure gates. A city was only as great as its walls are strong. They offered safety from raids. They symbolized strength and peace and dignity. But unwalled cities had no defense, had no defense against enemies, and were consequently then dismissed as an insignificant place. And that was the condition of Jerusalem at this time. And every time they tried to rebuild, the enemies that surrounded them, who didn't want them to gain any type of strength or power, would come in and shut them down. And at some point, the Jewish remnant there just kind of gave up, right? That's what we're hearing in this report. They just kind of gave up. The walls remained broken down. The gates remained burned down. So the people were now in distress and ashamed, reproach. And when Nehemiah received this news, this bad news, this sad report about the wall and the gates of Jerusalem, it tells us that he did five things in verse 4 in his response to this news. Look at what he did. Verse 4, as soon as I heard these words, I, one, sat down, two, and wept, three, and mourned for days, and I continued four fasting and five praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah's burdened heart sees the reality of the situation. He doesn't try to spin it positive, nor does he try to minimize the scope of the situation. We'll never have a holy burden until we have an honest view of how bad the need really is. And this is not to come against those who are optimists. I am not an optimist, but I love having an optimist in my life. Those, though, who are only looking at the bright side can sometimes be blinded. 
There are many situations in which the good news cannot be seen until the bad news is known and completely and honestly comprehended and felt as we see here with Nehemiah. This is true with our gospel, right? We must see the real truth of our sin nature. We must see the real truth of its offense to God in order, in order for us to see the real truth of God's forgiveness and love. We must know both intimately. We can't just err on one side that God is love and not talk about our sinful nature that separates us from God. But we can't just stop in the separation from God because of our sinful nature and not know God's loving, merciful kindness towards us. We must know both intimately. That is our gospel. We must know that God is both sovereign and good, that he is both in control of all things at all times of all people, but he's also good and loving, but he's holy and righteous in that goodness because that's what makes him good. We must know these things. So, so this is important to what Nehemiah does is he lets it just rest on top. This is the overwhelming burden, right? Not only does Nehemiah, in hearing this news, respond like he does for the walls and the people, but it's bigger than that. It's his burden to see God's glory known and shown to all people. J.F. Packer says again, he says, Nehemiah had asked anxiously after the state of things in Jerusalem because he cared so much about the glory of God and the good of souls there. You see, it was one thing to be concerned for a city and its inhabitants to be in distress. But when that city and those people are gods, the burden suddenly takes on a new perspective. See, when we see people in the image of God as they are, as God has made them, we understand that these are God's creation. When we see others like that, that burden falls on us too. A spiritual burden is weighted with more than just social or personal concerns. A spiritual burden bears the weight of concern over the glory of God and his work. The burdened person sees not just the broken down walls and the struggling people, but the larger spiritual issues involved here. So Nehemiah was troubled over the condition of Jerusalem because he was passionate about the will of God. As we're going to see in our study, if you could x-ray Nehemiah's broken heart, you'd find that his broken heart has a pulse that beats in rhythm with the heart of God. And we're going to see that as we study his life through this, through this series. Remember that the Jews were not just any old group of people. And Jerusalem was not just any city, right? The Jewish nation were God's chosen people. Jerusalem was God's holy city. It was a negative reflection on God's name that the Jews were in distress and reproach and Jerusalem had broken walls and burned gates. All that is coming as Nehemiah is showing us and helping us understand that this is bigger than just those, those details. He became distraught over the fact that people were not living up to God's calling on their lives. And he wasn't just concerned about the people. More than that, he shared God's concern for the people wasn't just his, it was God's concern for his people. So you could say his heart was broken by the things that broke the heart of God. We say that a lot. We actually sing that in a song. That our hearts would break by the things that break the heart of God. And that teaches us that God uses people that are sensitive to his heart. Their love for people is the overflow of hearts that are filled with the love of God. Isn't that what Jesus taught us? It's the greatest commandment. Love God. And love others. Isn't that it? Our love for people is the overflow of our love for God. That's what's happening here with Nehemiah. 
His love for God and God's glory to be known and shown to all. It's overflowing in his love and his weeping for those that are there. And when we allow that to happen, we're motivated, motivated then by the authority of the king who will judge all nations. Matthew 25, 40. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me as Jesus speaks to us this morning. And as the church, as Jesus' church, we're called to do many things that non-Christian people and groups and agencies do. But the distinguishing factor between us and them is our motivation. What is our motivation to do that? And the reason we do what we do is clearly stated in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do we, do we get that? Does that rest upon us, that truth, that all that we do, everything, as we talk about the expansion and the completion of the campus that God's given us to steward and to, to see come to, come to play into the lives of those who in the future will come, the generations that will be here, do we understand that all that we do, it's never for us, it's never for me or you or us collectively, it's for the glory of God and for Jesus to be exalted. So, so we say in this, it's not as individuals or groups with titles or labels. No. Jesus says, it, and we get into Matthew 5, 16, says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that you may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so we say, let the church be the church that exists to exalt Jesus and glorify God. Let's serve to the glory of God. Let, let's give to the glory of God. Let's preach to the glory of God. Let's witness to the glory of God. Let's sing to the glory of God. Let's pray to the glory of God. Let's worship to the glory of God. Let's give our lives to the glory of God. Yes. That's, what, that's, that's what's happening in Nehemiah's life. It's bigger than just him receiving this news. There's a burden. He's overwhelmed by it. And so when he received this news about Jerusalem, he got out of his chair and he sat on the floor and he began to weep. He began to mourn. He began to fast right there on the spot. And it lasted for many days. That's intensity. The Jews were only legally required to fast one day of a year, the Day of Atonement. And the fact that Nehemiah fasted at another time, one, is remarkable. Not only that, that he did it for many days is unheard of. It's noteworthy. One commentator noted the significance about his prayer and how it started. And we'll get into the prayer next week, but look at verse 4 again. As he prays, it says, And all the while he prayed before the God of heaven. Now underscore that phrase, before the God of heaven. It doesn't, it doesn't say he prayed to the Lord. It says he prayed before the God of heaven. And, and, and most major translations all back up that wording. To the Lord would mean that God was the object of Nehemiah's prayers. But before the God of heaven is idiomatic of submission, yield, yieldedness, and availability. So the commentator went on to say, he said, The point of verse 4 is not just the record of Nehemiah's reaction to the news about Jerusalem. It is moreover the record of Nehemiah offering himself to God as an instrument to use to do something about the situation. So again, he didn't just hear the news and let it overwhelm him. But he, but he spent time getting prepared to do something about it. And it started with prayer. 
Now, I've heard over the years, and maybe you're thinking this right now, I want to be used by God, but I'm just not able to do something great for God. I don't have the skills, I don't have the knowledge, the experience, the gifts, the resources, all those things that other people have, and so God can't use me. And what I would tell you is what I've learned over the years, well, let me tell you that your ability does not matter to God as much as your availability. Let me say that again. Your ability does not matter to God as much as your availability. That's why we're going to love Nehemiah. Because all in all, he didn't have all those extra special gifts and talents. But he was available. Doesn't matter who or where you are, if you're willing, God will make you able. And Nehemiah highlights God's ability to use any available person by calling the Lord the God of heaven. Did you, did you grab onto that? Our God is the God of heaven. Our God is the God of heaven. Nehemiah was willing to take bold steps of faith. Are we willing to take bold steps of faith? I hope so. I pray that we'll take those bold steps of faith because Nehemiah knew that his God was not some dead <laughs> earthly idol in a grave somewhere. He, he had the God of heaven as his God. So do we. But God is the living, holy, sovereign God who reigns over heaven and earth. God is in control. God is in charge. God has the last word. So may we take steps, bold steps, faithful steps, because our God is the God of heaven. Let's pray. Father, you're our God. You are alive, reigning, in control not pacing, not worried, not fretting, not surprised, not overwhelmed, not uncertain, but you are the God of heaven and earth. You know all. You're in control of all. You're in power over all. You are our God. And God, we are grateful, thankful that it doesn't take some special talent or ability or skill set to be used by you. What you're looking for is a person and a people whose heart is in surrender and submission and whose life is available to be used by you. God, make that true of us. Together, this step that you are calling us to a giant, bold step of faith to see you do more than we could ever think or imagine in us and through us, not for any of us, but for your kingdom. And as we do that for your kingdom, people are cared for, ministered to, and brought into your house through salvation and faith. God, may we never forget, may we never reduce, may we never diminish you and who you are. May we never shrink you down into some box and try to put some boundaries on you, but may we see you for who you are, the God of heaven, as Nehemiah prayed. You are the God of heaven. And that every one of us, as we lay our lives down in availability, 
you will enable us to be used, to be poured out, as Paul would say, as a drink offering. Be poured out so that, so that your kingdom come, so that your grace and gospel would go forth, that others, our neighbors, our family, our friends, our co-workers would come to know the, the beautiful, loving grace that Jesus has brought to us through his death his resurrection, the victory that comes over all the giants that we would face in life that is found in Jesus, that victory that only comes through him. God, that you would use us to shout that from the top of our lungs until we come home to you. Because there is no greater work that we could give ourselves to than the sharing and the ministering of your gospel into the lives of others. So God, minister that to us right now. And as you lead us, may we run. May we run, casting off the things that would bind and hold us back. May we run. Father, thank you that you've set us free from sin. Thank you that we have a home secure. And although we're not there yet, we will be soon we'll spend eternity with our Savior. God, call people home today. Call them to you. Those who are wondering, those who are drifting, those who haven't stepped towards you, may you call them home in repentance and faith. May they come home. May they receive the invitation of Christ to come home, to know his mercy and his forgiveness for their sin. And may we be overwhelmed with the burden to see everybody come home. We pray this in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.